This audio recording is of our regular Sunday service, Sunday, March 5th, 2017, at Restoration Road Church in Snohomish, Washington. The speaker is Sam Ford. More information can be found at restorationroadchurch.com. Amen. Well, good morning. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 41 today, and it is a long one. So uh, I probably won't read every single verse because there's many repetitions in there, but there are 57 verses, and we're going to go through it piece by piece. And I'm actually going to begin in Genesis 40 with the last verse, and then read into the beginning, kind of set the stage for where we're at. We have been going through the story of Joseph, and the story of Joseph will take us all the way to Genesis 50 at the end. It accounts for the kind of fourth section, if you will, in the book of Genesis. But verse 23 of chapter 40 reminds us of what has been forgotten. It says this, The chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. Chapter 41 begins, After two full years, Pharaoh dreamed. So this is the stage that is set for us, or the setting for this story in chapter 41. If you survey the whole story of Joseph, you'll see that he experiences more kind of dramatic reversals of fortune than probably anyone else in Scripture. Constantly up and down. Each chapter seems to present a new experience. He goes from son to slave, from uh, overseer to offender, from prisoner to what we'll see in here, what amounts to prime minister of a country or a nation. Joseph had been betrayed for little more than a few coins of silver by one of his own brothers, really all of his brothers. And in the eyes of the world, in the eyes of the family, he was as good as dead. And yet we see here the beginning of his Rise that will surprise everyone as he rises to save the entire known world. Sounds like a very familiar story. Well, as we begin 41, we see that it's been 13 years since that moment that he was sold into slavery by his brothers. And it's been anywhere between 2 and 11 years since he was cast into prison. Could have been as little as just a couple, could have been as many as 11. We know that it's been at least two years since the cupbearer was released from that prison who was told by Joseph to remember him when he goes before Pharaoh after interpreting his dream. It seems that Joseph is all but forgotten. And he didn't mention that he has been mistreated. He is unjustly in prison. And so Joseph is just simply not remembered. But God remembered him, and yet he did and said nothing for two years. Now think about that. God remembered him and said nothing and did nothing for two years. Interesting how quickly God becomes distanced in our life when we feel like he isn't doing or saying anything. It's very obvious here God is not saying or doing anything, but it's also very obvious that he is remembering Joseph. We are left to wonder, why wait two years? Why wait two years? Why not just release him immediately? Why not just get him out? You know you're going to get him out anyway. Let's just let him out immediately. 
It's possible that if Joseph had been freed as a result of the cupbearer's help, Joseph may not have been as grateful to the Lord. So maybe the Lord was working on his gratitude. It's probable that he would have congratulated himself for his shrewd thinking. I'm glad I mentioned it to the cupbearer, knowing that he was going to rise and be Pharaoh's right-hand man. I'm glad I thought of that. Good thinking, Joe. What is certain is that he would have not experienced the great blessing that God had planned for him if he had gotten out immediately. He would have simply been a freed slave in Egypt. Then what? Go home? Stay in slavery? Like what were his choices? And so, the Apostle Peter's words in 1 Peter 5, which I've read several times, couldn't be more appropriate. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time, He may exalt you. Do you realize that God didn't leave him in prison as much as he kept him in prison? I don't like the sound of that if I'm the one in prison. Oh, Lord, you're going to leave me? No, I'm going to keep you there, actually. I'm going to keep you in this prison that is painful, that you don't like, is uncomfortable, that you don't deserve. I'm going to keep you there because I got something awesome planned here, and if I don't keep you there, it won't happen. God kept him there. You know, when we're troubled, which it's very easy to be so if we give it enough time, if we're troubled by how God's purposes are unfolding in our lives, we have to be careful not to find relief of that tension in the world. Trying to find or or discover, if you will, um, the purpose of God in the world. Something that we all need to understand is that the world does not, and I will tell you, cannot understand the purposes of God. Because God has revealed those purposes in His Word. And the world does not and cannot understand that. God's people have not only been given ears to hear and, and, and eyes to see, but what we'll find out is that we've also, as we talked about last week, been given mouths to speak. I hope you understand that it would be amazing, but this is not the way it happens, it'd be amazing that when Jesus saves someone, it's like, gone. Like, well, there goes no one, just believe in Jesus. But that doesn't happen. You should ask, why? Why doesn't that happen? That would be so much easier than being kept in this world. Right? I'm telling you, if you believe, dang it, right? But the Lord keeps us here. He keeps us here. And you go, well, why? I guess he has something for us to do. It is through God's people who have ears to hear and eyes to see that we are to help the world understand what the truth is. That we are the ones who are are designed, if you will, called, if you will, to reveal and to teach and proclaim the greater purposes of God in all of life, especially the troubled times. We have that responsibility. We have that privilege because we have that understanding. 
I can tell you why the world is the way it is. Let me tell you why the world is broken. Let me tell you why things don't work. Let me tell you why we die. We have that understanding. And that is what Joseph has the opportunity to do. In verse 2, we'll continue. It says this. Pharaoh has a dream. It says he was standing by the Nile, and behold, there came up out of the Nile seven cows attractive and plump. I don't know what an attractive cow looks like, but I'm imagining it's a nice-looking cow. It stopped when I read that. I'm like, attractive cow. All right. And they fed in the reeds and the grass, and behold, seven other cows. Ugly. You know ugly cows. Right? I don't know if you ever drive. I thought about that. You drive down like Highway 2, because I grew up in Monroe, right? Lots of cows there. Do you ever go, man, those are some good-looking cows. Or do you go, oh, those are ugly cows. Poor farmer. I just. But there is an ugly cow and attractive cow, apparently. Seven each. They came out of the Nile, and the ugly ones stood by the cows on the bank of the Nile. And the ugly, thin cows ate up the seven attractive, plump cows. Now, can you just imagine that dream, though? Just crazy, right? These cows are like, it would be troubling. So seven ugly, thin cows ate the attractive ones. And Pharaoh woke up, scared freaking out, fell asleep and dreamed a second time. And behold, seven ears of grain, plump and good, were growing on one stalk. Behold, after them sprouted seven ears, thin and blighted by the east wind, and the thin ears swallowed up the seven plump full ears. And Pharaoh woke, and behold, it was a dream. So in the morning his spirit was troubled, and he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. And Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was none who could interpret it for Pharaoh. And the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, I remember. Two years later, I remember. So it's important because it's not like he's like, I ain't going to say anything, Joseph. He's not, he didn't remember. And then he suddenly does. I remember my offenses today when Pharaoh was angry with his servants and put me in the chief baker in custody in the house of the captain of the guard. And we dreamed on the same night, he and I each having a dream with its own interpretation. And a young Hebrew was there with us, servant of the captain of the guard. And when he told him, he interpreted our dreams to us, giving an interpretation to each man according to his dream. And as he interpreted to us, so it came about, and I was restored to my office, and the baker, well, you know, he was hanged. And then Pharaoh sent, and he called Joseph. And they quickly brought him out of the pit. That's how they describe the prison, the pit. Not a pleasant place. He had shaved himself and changed his clothes. He came in before Pharaoh, and Pharaoh said to Joseph, I've had a dream, and there's no one who can interpret it. I have heard it said that you, that when you heard a dream, you can interpret it. Joseph answered Pharaoh, it is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Let's stop there. So Joseph's rise out of this pit begins with a dream by the greatest leader of the greatest nation on the earth at the time. Now, the Egyptian empire was pretty amazing if you, if you learn about it. It was about, I think, 1,300 years, which is about twice as long as Greece and Rome. It was huge, massive, powerful. The pharaohs themselves were worshipped as mediators between God and men. 
Egyptians believed that the gods communicated with pharaohs directly, and they alone, the pharaohs, walked kind of between two worlds. There was no nation and no man more powerful than Pharaoh, and yet this guy's troubled by a little dream about cows and corn. Think about that, right? Really? Cows and corn? Just forget it, move on. But his spirit's troubled. And surprisingly, since he was considered divine, the Pharaoh has to ask for help to understand this message, which would be quite unusual because he is the one that walks between two worlds. He is the one to whom the gods speak to directly, but he doesn't get it. The truth is not a regular dream for Pharaoh, and sure he's had several others. This one's different than he has probably ever had before. Because this dream is a direct revelation from the one true God. And he doesn't get it. Now, it's a very interesting passage in one of Paul's letters. Uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, he says something about the ability for the world or a non-believer to understand the things of God. He says this in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 12. Now we, speaking to believers, the church, we've received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit is from God. That we might understand the things freely given to us by God. And he says, we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit. Interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. Now listen to this. The natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly or foolish to him. He is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The natural man cannot understand the spiritual things any more than the blind man can see. Something has to happen. Namely, they have to be saved by Jesus and filled with His Spirit, and suddenly things make sense. doesn't mean you have full knowledge of every single thing, but it means you understand that there is a God. You understand that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came in human flesh and that He died for sins that I deserve to die for. And He rose from it. Suddenly, that which was the craziest, foolish story makes sense. Pharaoh's a natural man, though, and he doesn't get the revelation of God. And he's troubled by what he sees, but he wants to understand what it means, and he can't. So desperate, he appeals to magicians. And you may think of David Copperfield or Blaine, those guys like the magicians, right? No. A little bit different. Magicians in ancient Egypt were asked or tasked with interpreting dreams. That's one of the things they did. They also practiced things like exorcisms, incantations, kind of like voodoo doctors a little bit. They were manufacturers of amulets to ward off diseases and they casted spells and kind of like, you know, witchcraft, sorcery, all those kinds of things. Sometimes they were called sorcerers, sometimes they're called magicians, sometimes they're called wise men. But surprising, perhaps even more than Pharaoh or about the same, is that the magicians are stumped. Which they must have not been very good magicians. Not that they could get understanding, but like, seriously? It's a couple cows and some corn. Make up something, right? It's really that hard, like, well, here's what it means, Pharaoh. And like, but they, 
for whatever reason, couldn't. They couldn't even come up with either, a, they couldn't come up with something, or the Pharaoh's like, no, that's dumb. That can't be what it means. But they, they're stumped. All the, now, this is the most powerful man, the most powerful nation. He could ask anyone what he wanted. He has supposedly the wisest people around him, and no one can figure it out. It's interesting for us to think about magicians today, because we don't think of magicians. But maybe for a second, like, do we, do we have these kinds of people today? Do you know that, that Paul makes a very interesting statement in his second and last letter to Timothy? about the last days. And he says, in the last days, there's going to be a lot of men that come about and they appear godly, but they actually deny the power that godliness brings. And he says, there's going to be a lot of men who love themselves way more than they love God. And then he goes far to say, there's going to be men like the magicians in Egypt. He actually names them the guys who opposed Moses. Egyptian magicians. Like in the last days, there's going to be guys like this, and they're going to be devoted to always learning, but never actually arriving to the truth and leading others astray. In the last days. In other words, there's going to be men and women, people who are pridefully puffed up with so much knowledge, tons of knowledge, and they will give foolish answers that are actually quite dangerous answers that appear to be true wisdom. Magicians. So who are the magicians today? Do they have names? Probably. But who do we look to? Like, let's be honest. Like, who do we look to? Who do most people look to when they're trying to interpret troubled times? When they're trying to understand economic issues or relational issues or political issues or, or their health problems. They Google it. Right? They Google it. I mean, our, our magicians, if you will, um, are only a Google search away, accessible whenever and wherever we need it. Foolishly, most, if not all of us, strive to understand even the ways of God by listening to the preachers of the world. And what do I mean by that? Well, there's a lot of them. To be fair, it's hard to ignore them. You know, the average Bible has uh, 1,200 pages. Okay? Average Bible. I'm sure, some more, some less. In 2008, the web contained one trillion pages. One trillion pages of information. In 2013, the quantity of information on the internet began doubling every 72 hours. He's like, okay, that, that's a lot. Every three days, the amount of information, this is back in 2013, doubles. In 2005 to 2014, the amount of time that people spent online tripled from 10 hours and 24 minutes each week to 27 hours and 36 minutes each week. So think about that. On average, this is average, so there's higher and lower. On average, the average person, whatever that means, spends more than four hours a day on the Internet. 
And that includes at work or whatever. Okay, so just take that fact. That's, that's a lot of time per day. It's a lot of time. It's like half a job. Compare that with the amount of engagement that people have with God's Word. There was a recent study, I think it was in 2014. If you can follow these along, I'll have these online in notes, but one-fourth of adults, so one-fourth of all adults polled, which was thousands and thousands, so representative case, 26% say they never read the Bible. So, okay. One in 10... 9%, read it less than once a year, about the same number, 11%, read it only twice a year, not including times when they're at church or a church event. So these three segments combined represent non-Bible readers, so that's 46% of people. The total proportion of Bible readers, that is those who read the Bible at least three to four times a year. 53%. 53%. 53%. of adults say they read the Bible daily. Another 13% spend time in Scripture several times per week, and it gets less from there. Elders, pastors, are the most avid readers. 24% say they read the Bible daily. One in four pastors read the Bible daily. Boomers, which I know there are some here, are also more likely to read the Bible, 20% compared to millennials and busters. Those are different generational terms. Residents of the South are more likely than residents of the Northeast, Midwest, or certainly the Northwest to read the Bible daily. And there have been no significant changes in the past three years on how often people report reading the Bible. What does that mean? Well, I guess it could be lots of things, but where do you think people will turn to most naturally when things get difficult to understand? I'm not convinced they turn here. I'm convinced they turn where it's easiest and where they spend most of their time already. Guiding their daily lives, making major decisions, Googling it. And while there are many questions, some of which even in this sermon I answered through Google, there are some deeper questions that you'll be very hard-pressed to find satisfying answers to from such magicians. Questions like, what is my purpose in life? Why am I here? Questions like, what happens after I die? Questions like, what is the meaning of suffering? How do I get through this? What is good and and what is evil? These are the kinds of questions that can only be answered through God's revelation. Questions that are beyond, if you will, the internet or other things you might look to. But there's another mistake that we can make. It's very clear that the world as exemplified by Pharaoh here, cannot provide an answer to some of the deepest troubles that they have. And so after the magicians can't provide an interpretation, the chief cupbearer, right, he remembers, oh, there's this Hebrew 
And he gave us some really good and answers that are correct because they came to fulfillment. So I know he's right. So Pharaoh sends for him, and in a moment, I mean, think about that. In a moment, Joseph's life has changed. He goes from the prison to the palace in a second. And as again, the Apostle Peter says, the Lord is never slow as some count slowness. He moves exactly the pace he desires to. But he can move very quickly if he so chooses. Like we get, we get stuck in these prisons and we go, man, it's going to be years before I get it. You realize it could be like that? It's not about determining when I'm going to get out. It's about trusting the Lord that he knows when you're going to get out. And it's at the perfect time. Nothing is impossible for God. If you worship the God of whom I do, who created the universe in a, with a word, like light, land, who can part the Red Sea, who can take the hearts of kings and shape them like you shape a stream of water, he could change any situation at any moment to suit his purposes and to glorify himself. So Pharaoh brings Joseph in. He tells him, look, I had this dream. I heard you can interpret. And then Joseph says the most amazing thing that you don't often hear from pastors. We beat myself up a little bit. He says, it's not in me. Nope, not in me. Now, can you understand? Like Joseph, he's sitting before Pharaoh. I heard you can interpret dreams. Nope. That's what he says. Not me. We go, dumb answer. Right? Pharaoh's pretty like, kill the, kill the cake baker because he just didn't like him or something. Like, be careful. Off with his head. He can't interpret. No, 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 I, I, no, I can. He says, no, it's not in me. Tells the man who can free him from prison, who can declare him innocent, the one who can bless his socks off, or the one who can kill him with a word that he has no power in himself to relieve his trouble. Joseph knows, and he lives as a godly man, but he knows he's not God. And the thing about this is that all too often Christians will do a fine job of rejecting the world's message and then idolizing God's messenger. Call them Christian magicians, right? So let me tell you a couple secrets, ready? The pastor has no power in himself. None. The counselor that you sit down with hoping to get the answer that will save all things has no power in himself or herself. None. Even the parrot has no real power in themselves. So we must not place our hope in the person who is speaking, but test and hopefully hope in the words that are being spoken. See, in our world today, there are 
I think too many men, and many accidentally, but too many men calling people to follow them and to like them and to, to really worship them and not enough people saying, don't look at me, follow Christ. And this is not their own fault necessarily, though when you start websites named after yourself and put your names on the front of Bibles, it's, you know, kind of laying the path for that. But somewhat of a friend of mine, but fellow pastor of mine, Joe Thorne, wrote it this way, I thought very well. He says, celebrity pastors or speakers, authors, don't simply build themselves. They're built with the help of fans. It's not wrong or idolatrous to get a photo with a person you admire, nor is it dangerous to love the preaching or teaching of a particular leader. But at some point, admiration turns into allegiance. And allegiance gives birth to adoration. And adoration, when it's full grown, produces idolatry. That's just not trust in the powers of the words, really, of men to save us. Let us not follow the example of the Corinthians who divide themselves into Team Apollos and Team Paul and Team Peter as they argued over who is the best teacher. And you go, oh, I don't do that. I haven't seen any Team Sam t-shirts, so I appreciate that very much. But consider this, like really, when you think about, am I, am I, am I guilty of, of following in the path of, of Christian magicians? Well, think about this. How often do we find ourselves quoting more sermons, reading more books, listening to more podcasts than we do quote, read, or listen to Scripture? Oh, I remember when this pastor said this. Oh, you have to read this book. How often are we saying, you should read this? Or when you're, this is why I always didn't like leading a road group, discussing a sermon that I preached, right? (laughs) Well, I really liked it when you said, like, that doesn't help. Or I didn't like it when you said blah, 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 right? Had both experiences. I'd rather go, what does the Bible say? Hey, remember verse 16 that said this? Man, that was powerful. And it's like a, it's a small thing, but that's what Joseph is saying. I don't got nothing, but God does. And we have to be very careful because we have stacks of books that we want to read and list the podcasts we want to listen to and we spend little time actually listening to God's Word, the words that promise to actually change us from the inside out. The only thing given us that says, it actually equips you for every good work. What does that include? Every good work. I want to be a, a better husband, better wife. What do I do with my money? What is my purpose in life? What should I do with this job? How do I deal with conflict in this relationship? right there. But very few of us open it up as we spend hours surfing the net. Liking and sharing all the quotes from different pastors and speakers. And that's not wholly evil, but we must be careful. My job as your pastor and our job as parents 
And our job as brothers and sisters in Christ is to point people to Jesus and not men. And it doesn't mean that God has not gifted men to articulate and communicate God's word effectively, but it does say 51% of the time, where are we turning? The man or woman of God can only make known the purposes of God insofar as they are communicating the word of God. And let us be doing that more than not. Well, first Pharaoh seeks or tries to find peace in the world, then he seeks it in a man of God, and Joseph says, seek it in God himself. Joseph declares, as I do, that he is no one and he's got nothing, but God certainly has something, for he is the only one who can relieve his deepest troubles in life. And so Pharaoh retells his whole dream. Look, there's these seven cows and these seven things. He's like, okay, here's what it means, he tells them. There'll be seven years of plenty and there'll be seven years of famine and the last seven years are going to be so bad that the seven years of plenty are going to disappear. And Joseph says, and God gave you the dream twice because it is certain to happen. You can't pray it away. You can't change something. It's going to happen. Get ready. And once he finishes, Joseph proposes a great plan to save Egypt. Here's what you need to do. Do this, do this, do this. Find someone to do this, do this, do this, do this. Beginning in verse 37, here's how Pharaoh responds. Says, this proposal pleased Pharaoh, as did the interpretation. And all his servants, and Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find a man like this in whom is the Spirit of God? And then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I've set you over all the land of Egypt. And then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand and clothed him in garments of fine linen, put a gold chain about his neck, made him ride in his second chariot, and they called before him, bow the knee, worship him. And thus he set him over all the land of Egypt. And moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, and without your consent, no one shall lift a hand or a foot in all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh called Joseph's name Zephaneth Paneah. And he gave him in marriage to Aseneth, the daughter of Potipharah, priest of On. So Joseph went out over the land of Egypt. And Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went through all the land of Egypt. During the seven plentiful years, the earth produced abundantly. And he gathered up all the food of these seven years that occurred in the land of Egypt. And he put the food in cities. And he put in every city the food from the fields around it. And Joseph stored up grain in great abundance like the sand of the sea until he ceased to measure it, for it could not be measured. And before the year of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph. Eseneth, the daughter of Potipharah, priest of Un, bore them to him. Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh, for he said, God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. The name of the second he called Ephraim, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. So Pharaoh listens to his plan, and he looks at him. It's like, can anyone do better than this guy? Is anyone as wise as it? Does anyone have the spirit of God that this guy has? And then Pharaoh declares that there's no one. There's no one. This guy is the smartest dude in the entire world. 
And he says, he should be over my house. He's going to be over all of Egypt. I'm going to dress him like royalty. He puts a signet ring on it, which would have the name of Pharaoh on there. And he makes everyone bow before him as if he is a god himself. Puts him in a second chariot, showing his power. And he gives him basically Egyptian citizenship by giving him a new name and a new wife or a wife. And it's interesting, the wife is the daughter of the high priest of On. And his daughter's name, so his wife's name, means gift of the sun god. On was also called Heliopolis, same city. That was the city of the sun. And it was the main center of worship for the sun god, Ra. And the high priest, this guy named Potiphera, would have been called the greatest of all seers in the greatest of all worship cities, in the greatest of all nations. And so Joseph, right, God's chosen vessel, after 13 years of suffering, is placed at the center of worship in the greatest nation on earth, in the most influential political and spiritual position possible. Wow. God has been made supreme. Or has he? How do you think Joseph's feeling? How do you respond when things go well? You ever been um, a part of a church in the early stages before it becomes a megachurch? And not to say this happens all the time, but do you ever seen a pastor changed in those moments? Have you ever started in a business at a very lowly state? Maybe you were just the gopher, maybe you were an intern, and then suddenly you're running the company or you are vice president. Does your attitude change? I have watched it. I think I've experienced it regretfully, that even those who begin by trusting God seem to have a tendency to be ruined by prosperity. And the faithful tend to become faithless. The once desperate suddenly become entitled. The once grateful for being freed from prison tend to become quite prideful living in the palace. Something happens when people go from the prison to the palace. And it's not pretty. And we pray that God will get us out of the prison, not understanding that perhaps He's leaving there long enough so that we won't freak out when we get into the palace. Like that we're not quite ready for that comfort. We're not quite ready for blessing. Oh, come on. Really? I could handle blessing right now. I could be out of prison right now. Maybe not. We are in such danger of falling if we are not continually desperate and grateful for God's grace. Much like Paul's thorn in the flesh, I often wonder 
if God leaves some of those painful struggles in my life so I will keep trusting him desperately. And as much as I want to get rid of that thing, the Lord's like, that is the thing that's keeping you dependent upon me. So I'm going to leave it there. But after 13 years, right, of trusting God through his pain, he was a slave, he was a prisoner, he was abused in so many ways. He is now prime minister in charge of everything. How many people could he get back at at this point? Hey, uh, send Potiphar's wife in, right? But he goes out, he does his promised proposal, he gathers food for seven years, he stores up for the coming famine, and before the famine comes, he has two sons, and I believe this, the names of his two sons reveal the heart of Joseph, like, okay, is he, is he, is this going to go into his head? He says, Manasseh, his first son, God has made me forget my hardship. In Ephraim, God has made me fruitful in my affliction. See, all the things that Joseph, and understandably so, deeply hungered for, he received. He wanted to forget the pain of his past. He wanted to get beyond that. It hurt. And he also wanted to be fruitful again in the midst of a situation that he didn't probably want to be in. He wanted to do more than just survive. He wanted to thrive and he got both the things he desired, but he didn't receive them by pursuing them. You catch that? What can I do to forget? What can I do to forget? What can I do to get past? He didn't, that wasn't his pursuit. He didn't, he didn't try and leverage himself or go, how can I be fruitful? How can I force my way to get ahead and do these things? He simply pursued God and got them both. For any of us who want to forget the hardship of our past, or we want to experience again fruit in our present, I'm telling you the secret is not to press into those things as much as to press into God Himself, who may give you the glorious gift of peaceful amnesia for your past, and open your eyes to see perhaps the fruit that is right there before you. He trusted that God was in all things, and he began to see God in all things, even his hardship of the past and his affliction in the present. Let me close with the last verses in verse 53. It says, The seven years of plenty that occurred in the land of Egypt came to an end, and the seven years of famine began to come. As Joseph had said. And there was famine in all lands. So the whole world. But in all the land of Egypt, there was bread. And when all the land of Egypt was famished, the people of the land of Egypt, I'm sorry, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread. Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, go to Joseph. And what he says to you, do. 
And so when the famine had spread over all the land, Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. And moreover, all the earth came to Egypt. All the earth came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain because the famine was so severe, which is setting it up for his brothers to come and see him. When the famine strikes, Egypt is not only prepared, it is the only place in the world to find bread. And they are told, go to Joseph, do what he says to do. Go to Joseph, do what he says to do. Now, Joseph had received a new name. It was Zephaneth Paneah. And there's different translations for that name, but most scholars agree that it means one of two things. The God speaks and he lives. Or God spoke and came into being. Which points us to where Joseph and his whole story is designed to point us. Because God did speak and his word did come into being. And his name was Jesus. His name means God saves. Many people come to Jesus for bread like the Egyptians came to Joseph believing that bread is their greatest need. Jesus fed several people, and the one I'd like to reference you is in John chapter 6. He fed several thousand people, then he got in a boat, and he left. And the people chased him around the coast. And when he got there, Jesus was kind of cold with them. It says, they found him on the other side of the seas in John 6, verse 25. They found him on the other side of the sea, and they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? As we watched you float across, and we've chased you. Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. You're coming to me because I fed you bread. And he says, Do not work for food that perishes, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on Him, God the Father has set His seal. And they said to Him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in Him who He has sent. And they said to Him, well then what sign do you do that we may believe you? Will you make us some more bread, please? It's really what they're asking. Well, we'll believe you when you do us a sign. I know you fed us a few minutes ago, but we'd like another sign, preferably some meat as well. And this is what they say. Can you tell us, give us the sign. I mean, our fathers ate manna. They're talking about bread. Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness. Moses gave them bread from heaven. So Jesus says, truly I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread. Right? Just like Joseph, it ain't me. It's not Moses who gave you the bread. But my Father gives you true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to him, sir, give us this bread always. And he said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. 
You see, essentially people began to view, at least those people, Jesus as another magician who was going to solve their problems. And who of us doesn't think that our problems could be solved by a little extra bread? Add a little more money, everything would be fine. Add a little better health, everything would be fine. If I had a different relationship, everything would be fine. You're looking for the wrong bread. Jesus is the greater Joseph who offers the greater bread. And the question simply for all of us and that he asks us is, are you hungry? And the answer is yes, we're all hungry for something. We all have some level of emptiness that we feel. Some of us hungering for love, some of us hungering for success, for security, for joy. And though there are lots of places to feast in this life, there are none that will truly satisfy the deep hunger of your heart. As Pharaoh said about Egypt, I say about Jesus, go to Jesus and do what he says. It's really that simple. Go to Jesus to satisfy that great hunger you have, you feel famished by, and do what he says. And what does Jesus say? What did he say? Trust God with your life. Repent and believe. Acknowledge your need for a Savior, that things are broken and you can't fix them. Surrender your need to control and find freedom from guilt and freedom from shame at the cross. Confess through your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart God raised Him from the dead and you will be saved. The last verses that Jesus speaks in that same passage, says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of the Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. No one has to leave this building today without the deepest conviction and comfort that you have eternal life if you're to die on that street. And I pray that you will receive that, and you will believe that, and you will join God's people as we partake and confess together that Jesus died for me in my place, for my sins, and he lived the perfect life that I was supposed to and just couldn't because I stink. And he says, here, Here's perfection. Take it and believe. That's all I got. Pointing to him. Let's pray.